0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome everybody. Uh, on today's episode at New Books Network, we have with, um, we have with us Rustam Um and we are here to discuss his book, The Second Wave, Reflections on the Pandemic Through Photography, Performance and Public Culture. Welcome Rustam, we're so happy to have you here.
2: Thank you, Garima. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: As a tradition, I would like to start with a question about your intellectual and artistic biography. And um, just to hear more about you as the author of this book and your own sort of personal journey um, of coming to theatre, coming to public culture work, um, cultural studies. Um, Yeah, it'd be really nice to hear more about that.
2: Thanks, Karima. Well, I've written a number of books over the years. my primary field is interculturalism, which I've been writing about since the 1970s. So, the exchange of cultures across nations and all the problems and challenges that go with that uh, relationship. And I've studied that primarily in relation to performance practice. Okay, so that's one whole chunk of my work. And I've written a number of books on that Theatre in the World, uh, The Politics of Cultural Practice, etc. In India, where I'm based, you know, all my work is is located in India at some level or the other. I write from India, from Calcutta. That's my home city. I've got very interested over the years in what I call intraculturalism, which is the exchange of cultures within regions and local communities. So I've worked with a number of communities like the Siddhi community, persons of African descent living in India, more often than not through theater, but also in relation to social movements. So I've done, uh, there's a whole body of writing around that. Um, I've written on oral history in relation to Rajasthan. Uh, This is through my conversations with Komal Kothari, an extraordinary man who had this knowledge of the desert that very few people had. And that's very much in my book, The Second Wave. I've written about Chandralekha, the dancer, choreographer who is also in the book. So I was looking back on people, well, who've passed on. And uh, I often felt while I was writing about them that maybe it was a kind of act of mourning, you know, for people who have played a very integral role in my life. And I'm deeply, deeply grateful to them. So to answer your question, Garima, basically, I'm a theater person. And whatever I write, I think underlying everything is the fact that I see the world through a theatrical lens, a performative lens. I don't know how this is, maybe because, you know, I trained as a dramaturg at the Yale School of Drama and theater is very much part of my life. So I would say theater underlies everything. So just to give you an example, a more concrete example of what I mean as you have, I believe, connections with anthropology. So when I was doing this book on Komal Kothari called Rajasthan and Oral History, I was not, uh, I'm certainly not an anthropologist, I'm not a social scientist, I'm not a Rajasthani specialist. So how could I write this book which has now circulated quite widely in the field? And I would say I listened to him for three years. I listened to him talk. And I think what enabled me to write this book, as some historians like Romila Thapar and Shahid Amin have acknowledged informally, is that I had a certain openness, you know, to what I was listening to. I was not a specialist, you know, I can't claim to be a specialist, but I have this, uh, I dare say, a capacity to listen. And this capacity to listen really comes from the theater. This is our discipline in the theater. We have to listen. And we don't just listen with our ears, we listen with our bodies. It's a very embodied listening. So even as I'm listening to you, and I'm not listening, I'm looking at you as I'm talking here. And uh, it, it, it's, it's something is going on here, you know, in the act of listening and the wiring of what is going on. So to answer your question very briefly, I think I'm, I'm a theater person and the way I like to deal with uh, embodied processes of communication You know, I'm very, very, uh, uh, I can't work without an experiential dimension. I need that experiential dimension. The cognitive also matters to me very much. I do a fair amount of analysis and all that. But actually, I have to feel something about what's going on between me and the person uh, uh, on the other side. So that's that would be my answer.
1: Wow, that's putting it so well. Um, and I, I have always believed that theatre can bring a lot to anthropology because of its heavy reliance on close listening and experientiality and fieldwork, which is the bedrock of anthropological work. Is about that kind of experiential being, embodied presence, um, and you know, human encounters through very deep sort of you know, um, through engaging all your senses and not just um, not just you know. Um, so to feel, to touch and to really be there and that's at the heart of anthropology and theatre can, there's so much to learn from theatre um, which is why I thought reading your book was so so educational for me. Um, so coming to the book uh, you bring a very unique sort of theatrical performance-based perspective to COVID and, and especially the second wave um, which is really quite unique and I've not seen that anywhere else um, and very and very productive. It's really doing something in how we think about um, think about the pandemic. Think about a pandemic which evokes the idea of breath in such a sort of you know um, uh, in such a intimate way. Um, can I ask you about the journey of this book and how you came to conceptualize it, um, and and also because you were writing this book while the pandemic was still ongoing, and there's something about it. Being a very sort of, you know, it's coming from a very live experience and it's not a kind of, you know, just reflecting back on something. Absolutely.
2: Um, So, if I could just ask you how
1: this this book was birthed from the moment, you know, it's come out of the moment that it's writing about.
2: See, uh, as you know, uh, Garima, I went through. I've been with this pandemic as a writer for two years, okay? So in the first year, during the first year of the lockdown, I think I shared this with you. I don't know how or why, but I felt a great need to address the pandemic in relation to theatre practice. Now, one reason for that could well be that there was no theatre practice during the pandemic. You know, all the theatres had shut down totally, you know? So there was this void, there was this silence And that silence has been very catalytic for me. And let's say that in the first year, I don't know how I got this energy, but I found myself reflecting on the relationship between uh, theater and the coronavirus, as I called it at that time. And uh, I dealt with these reflections through the global closure of theaters worldwide, which is. Absolutely, I would say, unprecedented in the history of theatre. That's a very large statement, but I stand by it. I reflected on the Spanish flu pandemic when theatres and cinema houses remained open in cities like Bombay and Calcutta and London and New York and some of these cities. And uh, one wonders how could they have done that when there were more people dying during, uh, you know, 1918-19 than uh, they have died during our time. I dealt with uh, the performativity of social distancing. I dealt with the fact that even though theaters had shut down, that didn't stop people from assembling on the streets to protest. And I'm thinking here of Black Lives Matter. I'm thinking here of uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act in India, et cetera. So anyway, so that was the first year. And that there was a very direct connection between theatre and and the pandemic. Okay. Now this just to answer your question and I'm going to relate it to the second part. I was very clear about one thing. I didn't want this to be a written text. So I had a nine-episode video lecture. I wanted to speak the text. I very strong urge in me. I've never had it before, I'll be honest. I've never had this urge. I'm a writer. But I felt a great need to somehow rent a studio, sit in front of the camera, and do something like a three-hour, 40-minute series of lectures, which I did. Okay. I didn't want to write it. There was this obligation, okay, I'll write about it when things are okay. Well, things were not okay, so... Now we come to 2021. And in April 2021, between April and May 2021, as you may be aware, it was a catastrophic time for us in India and many other parts of the world. And we lost in those two months, 106 to 6,000 people, you know, and That was a larger number than the entire number of people who had died in the first year, you know. So we were living with death or let's say the aura of death, the omnipresence of death. Okay. now things changed radically for me at this point. This is interesting. I had no desire to speak about it. I had no I couldn't think about theater at this time. I have to be honest. I couldn't. I was thinking about death, actually. And death was, the, and then out of death came, you know, all the motives for the book that's grief and mourning and extinction. But death was the primary condition, let's face it. I was shaken and I was very, very jolted by the whole thing. And I think I just went into myself. Maybe it was my defense mechanism. This was one way of keeping sane. And I started to write. And that's how the second wave came about, you know. So now I have to share with you that this is a completely different kind of writing from anything I've ever done to date. I'm your average academic writer. I spent three years in the book, five years in the book. I research it, I strategize it, I frame it, etc., etc., you know. But this piece of writing, as you have so astutely pointed out, is that I was writing about something that was unfolding, you know, I was writing about something that was in the present continuous. I had no handle on it. I had no, you could say, uh, you know, what we need in academic writing is some kind of objectivity, some kind of standing outside of the material kind of thing, which is important for all of us. I couldn't do that for this, this writing. I was in it. And I was writing about something that was happening. So I think this has definitely affected the writing of the book. And as you can see, it's not, your, uh, it's not an academic book in, in a very clear-cut uh, kind of doctrinaire sense. It's an essay. You know, I found myself just moving in an essay. And today, if you ask me what's the takeaway in terms of writing, I, I think it's really fascinating. I think the pandemic compelled us to think differently we were not thinking in the same way. I don't mean the content of thoughts. I mean how you're thinking, the rhythm of thinking, you know, the kinds of associations of thinking. I think this changed radically, and there's a lot of work to be done in a more scholarly manner. What did it do to our minds? What did it do to our psyches? You know, I was really, I was very struck by the fact I was thinking differently, and I would just... To make it a little more clear, I think I was thinking through associations and memories, you know, and I was not working through a very strict logic of argument, which is what normally happens in the books we write. But uh, I was thinking through certain drifts of, uh, you know, uh, images and so on and so forth. So uh, I would say yes, definitely, this was a unique experience for me. Uh, Now, the funny thing is, now that it's written and it's published and I can hold it in my hand, now I want to talk about it. And which is why I'm very grateful to you, because there are many things I didn't maybe say or I didn't say clearly enough. And, you know, I want to share that in a conversational mode. So that's where I'm coming from.
1: I completely agree with you. When when one reads the book, there is a sense of liveness in the book, that it feels like this kind of live electric thing in your hand when you're reading it. And also the book is really you know as you are saying there's no stepping out an objective viewing of a start and an end and a kind of you know surveying a thing that has already happened it's the book acknowledges that it is emerging from the middleness from the thickness of things that are happening from a from a silence that continues to surround you as you are writing it and also in the way that you explore you know, explore ideas in the book. It's it's um, with a very real sense of curiosity. The stakes are very real that you're actually trying to make sense of this and following you know following your own sort of stream of consciousness as it were. Um, so that's very true. Um, and I think all readers of the book will will agree with with, with me and with us on this. Um, can I invite you to maybe share a little about the story that the book tells? What is what what does the book what does the book um, what is the journey that the book takes us on? Um, and not sort of, you know, now next as next to your own journey of coming to it and writing the book. Um, and sort of maybe talk a little about the book's journey and the, the story it tells. Uh,
2: thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that question. Uh, it's hard to uh, pinpoint things with the process of this book because, as you say, it's in media stress, you know, you're in the middle of something. But if I had to think a little more rigorously, I definitely began with the difficulty of mourning. How do you mourn, you know, when all the conditions that are uh, associated with mourning through rituals and through different kinds of ceremonies, just meeting relatives and friends, when all of that is disrupted, and how do you mourn? I think that so my first uh, I, if i if i excavate the book a little bit i think my opening would have been no time to mourn that was in a sense the working title that buzzing in my mind and then that somehow got derailed because i felt i needed to know a lot more because what does one know when you're sitting in your own room we have the luxury the privilege to sit in our rooms, there are many people who don't have that luxury, they're homeless, you know, during the pandemic, and you're sitting in front of your uh, computer, and of course you're surfing the internet furiously. I I mean, that's a huge, huge connection, you know, because that's kept us going in a certain way, you know, I I, I can't deny that. So out of that kind of surfing, I think the journey from mourning and grief and there's a lot written on these subjects I wanted more evidence about what was going on now evidence is a very difficult thing to uh, to pinpoint you know what is the evidence especially if you're not witnessing it uh, you know one to one you know so I turned to photographs because there were so many photographs that were emerging on my screen and they, they really uh, uh, you know hit me very very hard you know and um, I um, I found myself uh, engaging with these photographs, trying to talk to them. I, I felt there were a lot of stories coming out of these photographs. And then out of those photographs, I, I very intuitively turned to three of them, which are very much in the opening of the book. You know, The, the three images, maybe for our listeners, I can describe the, the two men in a hospital bed, sharing a hospital bed with these oxygen masks at a time, when people were choking to death because there was no oxygen in in hospitals as well. So that was one image. Uh, Extraordinary sharp image by Danish Siddiqui, who, as you know, died later on when he was caught in the crossfire in Afghanistan between Afghan forces and the Taliban. So uh, it's like a war zone. And that war zone, I, I could see that war zone in the photograph itself. The second image was really blood curdling. It's of a man running through uh, a burning funeral pyres, you know, and uh, you know, in a very abject state, you know. And in that, for some reason, I began to associate this with the end of the Mahabharat, which is something that I've been working on for some time. So there's a kind of association with what happens when everything is destroyed. And there's just fire burning fire, and you're running through it. This guy's just fleeing. And the third image was particularly disturbing. It's that of over a hundred bodies at least embedded in the in the banks of the ganga uh, outside of Ilabad. And you know, so I began to deal with these uh, these images and tell the stories. and then out of that came, well, is this evidence? That's always a big issue, you know, in photography. Some people don't accept uh, law courts, for example, don't accept uh, photographs as providing actionable evidence. You know, they don't think it's, it's clear enough, it's precise enough, it's accurate enough, et cetera, et cetera. And then around that time in the journey, because life was going on, I participated in a small uh, symposium called The Ends. And that led me into thinking about extinction as a trope, you know. So the the last part of the book ends with this kind of, uh, these reflections on different kinds of ends, you know. Uh, uh, I bring in genocide, I bring in ecosystem, my God, you can't take in more. And leading, and I'm happy to say, I don't know how this happened, Garima, but I'm, I'm, quite happy about the ending of the third part. It took me into a reflection on breath and the vitality of breath and how we have to develop a new understanding of breath to renew our energies in order to deal with what uh, writers like Franco Berardi call breathlessness, which is the condition of our time. So in a sense, this was the journey of the book, from mourning into finding evidence for death into extinction. These were reflections, and I don't think anything more than that.
1: I think one thing that's quite striking about the book is how efficiently um, it scales you know, different levels of thinking, but also experience, and also how the pandemic is unfolding. And I thought it was a very intelligent choice to begin with these three images that speak to three different elements. There's the element of air and breath, in the image that is on the hospital bed. Then there's water from the river and then the fire. And just starting with these three elements really speak to your idea of capturing what you call the banality of terror. Um, And I think those elements really set the scene um, uh, for the different scales that the book moves um, across. Um, But on, on on the theme of photographs, there's also this very important point that you make that because you move us beyond just the affective and the experiential to also sort of think seriously about the political economy and you know the larger sort of context in which these images are being produced and circulated and so sometimes not allowed to be circulated so if we can maybe reflect a little on this um, this wider context of censorship within which certain stories about the pandemic are told and then told only in very specific ways and some stories are not allowed to be told.
2: Yeah, censorship plays a role in this. Ownership plays a role in this. I I was very, at some point, you know, ultimately I dare say that though I was overwhelmed by what was going on, I didn't lose my critical thinking, you know. Uh, that is because I'm a habitual critic, I dare say. And so I started, so I might share with you that even though I, ha- in the section on the ethics of crying, I do acknowledge that I, I did cry when I was seeing some of these images, but while I was crying, I was also thinking, why am I crying? You know, and, what does it mean to cry in, uh, in the context of a pandemic? You know, I, so the, the mind was, in a sense, already at work there. So I was kind of disturbed at one level or the other. Um, uh, I had to play the devil's advocate as such with my own position. You know what I mean? That's, I think, important. I said, where are these images coming from? They're all on my computer screen, yeah. But where is it coming from? Who owns these images? And then you realize you're going into the biggest corporations of the world, notably Getty Images, on which I don't wish to say much, but they own everything, you know. And in fact, Getty has bought uh, Bill Gates's over a million, uh, what, much more than millions of uh, his photographs, uh, which he uh, owned under Corbis Images, and he, he sold the whole package to to Getty, uh, mediated by a, a Chinese uh, corporation, China Media Group, or whatever. So we're talking of mega bucks. We're talking of huge amounts of money here, you know. And then somehow or the other, they're landing up on your smartphone or they're landing up on your computer screen. And I have a problem with consumption, you know. I, I, my, because my. There again, it goes back to Brecht. Bertolt Brecht, who is very important for me in the theatre, and he always sort of warned against this easy consumption, what he called culinary theatre. You know, you've got to be a little more vigilant, but you can't just go on consuming, and in this case, consuming horror and death and tragedy. It's just there's something very obscene about that, you know. So I began to develop some kind of an argument, and I found it very tricky because on the one hand, I'm aware of how insidious the consumption of grief can be. And I bring that up in the second part of the book when I'm dealing with this massive installation by this American artist um, and on, called An Occupation of Loss. So I'm, I'm wary of that. But on the other hand, if we didn't have these images, how would we think? You know, what would we be thinking with? What would be our material? So this is a, you know, as a researcher, I had to deal with that kind of conundrum, that kind of paradox. I had to deal with the contradiction of that kind of thing. And uh, so that was it. I started dealing with ownership. Censorship was going on all the time. So I bring up this whole image that our newspapers, as you might know, are very thin these days. There's very little news beyond, you know, what is absolutely acceptable. And I began to realize what would happen if any of these images had to be, let's say, foregrounded on the front page of a newspaper. It would be incredibly uh, powerful, maybe disturbing. I would acknowledge that, but it wouldn't be allowed. You know, it would be considered anti-national, you know, if you had to show this kind of work. So, as you know, our government has gone out of its way to, you know, to, as I say, what I say, the manufacturer of amnesia is very much at work. You know, they don't want us to think about these terrible things that happen to people. Terrible, you know. I mean, I feel that uh, for me the, the the biggest crime is not having oxygen available for people, you know, when they most needed it. And I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like for people who lost parents or, you know, loved ones. Oxygen is something I, as a modern person, would like to believe should be made available, should be available in any hospital, you know, even in a state of emergency. Indeed, most of all, in a state of emergency, you need oxygen. It's a, it's something so basic, you know, and it's not there. So I, I began to think about these problems. But there was another issue that came out of it in dealing with the manufacture of amnesia, which I brought up earlier. And... It has to do do photographs have the capacity, the potential to indict those who are responsible for larger crimes. So photography as a source of indictment, you know, that's a very tricky and difficult argument to make. And that's when, if you ask me what was the section that uh, gave me a lot of trouble and I had to do a lot of talking to many lawyers before I wrote it because I'm, I don't have a background in law. And it was a section on in the eyes of the law, because in the eyes of the law, most photographs of this kind would never hold up. And uh, there would be you wouldn't be able to begin to frame something like a crime against humanity as Arundhati Roy, for example, has formulated. It just doesn't work within the, the logic of the law. So I'm happy that you, uh, you see this, that with the affect, uh, there's also a problematization of distribution, circulation, censorship, and the possibilities of indictment and justice. You know, so I was working with... Uh, so I, so basically, the two words I bring up in my introduction are crucial. There's empathy, but with empathy, there is critique. And I tried to balance that, yes. So it wasn't fully, uh, it wasn't like a totally personal, uh, it was not a fiction in that sense of how it affected me. I was also trying to think through it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it really does come across because even in your discussion of photography, where there's there's so many competing things at play, there is this kind of, you know, incessant circulation of images and this kind of like this theater of, you know, terror and pathos. And it's on our screens, it's, on, it's in the newspapers, it's everywhere. But then at the same time, there is all that is being silenced and not coming out. And then also, this kind of very important point you make about what of this can actually mobilize, you know, enact action, what, you know, what can be used as evidence, which is such a useful point. And I think a lot of this really comes together in your discussion on the migrant crisis, because there, if we if we run with this idea of like making visible, it it did this massive work of like making visible not just the the scale of the of what was happening at the time, but also an invisible economy that is you know that that runs our cities and which we so it was you know making visible not just the pandemic but also a larger broader structure of inequality and privilege that sustains uh, you know the cruelties that we are seeing in an exaggerated form during the pandemic. Um, so I think the migrant crisis and your discussion of images around that really brings home this point. Um, and I, I you know I, I I wonder if you have more to say on that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's very hard to just, when you're writing quote about the pandemic, you can't just, just write about the pandemic. You have to open the before and the after. So we know migrant uh, laborers have been, internal migrants have been, they sustain our economies. If they weren't there, how would our economies work? It's an oppressive normal. That's what I call it. So that's the normal, which is oppressive to begin with. And then you're thrown out by your employers. You say, go to hell, go back, do what you want. They will. They had no support, absolutely no support. And I feel in that terrible condition, millions actually, as we know, had to walk back home, walking home in, in this day and age and, uh, you know, no trains, no buses. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's it's a very dehumanizing kind of process. There are many images uh, I wish I had talked about, at least I want to share this with you, that one of the most disturbing images I, I encountered of the migrants, it was a very blurred image, and maybe that's one reason I, I couldn't use it. I should have addressed it. And it's just an image of a whole busload of passengers, migrants, who are squatting on a sidewalk or on a pavement on some highway or the other, just like squatting, while some government employee is spraying them with disinfectant. Now, just that image is enough. You are reducing people, I'm sorry, to the state of termites, you know. They are being dehumanized at that level, and this is of course where Agamben's argument on bare life and all becomes indeed very resonant. So I remember, I don't know why this didn't get into the book, but this is something that certainly haunts me. There are many untold stories that will never be, have not been recorded, obviously. And I don't know what uh, anthropologists, for example, who are really doing deep work on grief, how they would go about, you know, researching the the millions of stories. How do you capture the scale of that? Because that is on the one hand, but also the individuality of each of those stories. So I had to bring in one person. I'm very, it's hard to say happy, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm very in a sense, grateful that uh, Rampukar Pandit's story is in the book. And Rampukar Pandit is just one more uh, migrant. Oh, God, this is, this is hard even to talk about. I mean, and he's uh, on Nizamuddin Bridge. He's, he's trying to go home to his home in Begasarai and he's clutching his battered uh, mobile phone, and he's hearing that his less than one-year-old son has died. I mean, I can't even begin to take in the the tragedy of that, you know. And, of course, being locked down, he's not allowed to move. You know, he he has to obey all kinds of uh, state laws, etc., I did a little bit of research. You know, you become a bit of a detective when you write this and you're relying on newspapers. So I wanted to follow up on his story as much as I could. And I was very heartened to say, and I think we should not forget the positive, that a social worker actually found him a ticket to get onto a train to Surai in very difficult conditions so he could get back home, but only after being cornered in a quarantine camp before he reached home and then things of course have been desperate for him. So that one story made me realize a lot, uh, Garima. We go on in, uh, you know, we talk about the psychological dynamics of grief. Obviously, we have to do that. But in his case, it's also linked to poverty. It's linked to the fact he has no money. As he says, no work, no money, you know. So this is really, uh, you know, gets to the core of it all where there's a relationship between Uh, the economics of grief and the actual psychological dynamics of grief
0: i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, and this goes straight to that tension, uh, uh, which is at the heart of the book, that in normal times, we would think of grief and mourning as twinned. But in the context of COVID, grief is, is inescapable, but then mourning also becomes, you know, you're denied mourning and mourning becomes impossible. Um, yeah, and That's I'd very love well to hear pointed. more about how that is
2: actually uh, in the book but i think you're articulating there is a, there's a disjunction there's a separation between grief and mourning they are not to it they're not flowing into each other they are they're actually torn apart by the the conditions that have been imposed on us and uh, i i would say mourning uh, without mourning there's no possibility of coming to terms with grief i mean broadly i would ignore in whatever way you mourn you know, I, I feel, but you're right. It has been very cruel on people. And to be honest, I don't think we've even begun because everything has got, you know, the semblance of returning to normalcy is so huge. You know, in our in everywhere, you know, things are back to normal, but they're not back to normal. Uh, I can tell you, I live on a very crowded street in Calcutta where there's trams and buses and lorries and there are hundreds of shops, and I can tell you, many of those shops have not opened after the pandemic, many young men in particular, running tiny little shops, selling maybe belts or locks or whatever, they haven't been able to return to their businesses. So we haven't been fully, we haven't fully accounted for how much has been lost in this, in, uh, during this period. You know.
1: Yeah. But one thing that I found quite striking in the book is that um, you speak about this, the cruelty of being denied um, denied mourning, but also a full accounting of one's losses. But um, there is, um, what I think also becomes a very creative analytical opening for you as a writer in the book is to move from ritualistic practices of mourning artistic practices and what artistic performances can do, can do to create a space of mourning and that shift from ritual to the space of art to sort of follow, you know, to follow the idea of performance and the performance of mourning uh, and to find that in the space of art and theater and images, I think is a very is a very productive way and a very creative way to think about it. Um, and yeah, I'd like to invite you to speak more about the artistic performances of mourning and what space that opens.
2: Well, I'm very reassured to hear you say this because the one section of the book in the second part where I deal with so-called, I put it in quote, artistic mourning practices, you know. Uh, I was very unsure because, as you know, the examples that I'm drawing on are mainly... Uh, coming from Europe. And there's definitely, uh, because most of the examples in the book are dealing with Indian realities and so on, I was wondering, this might just be too much of a jolt because this kind of work is not something they're very familiar with. But it actually came out of something very real. Um, And it came out of reading a book, actually, by a colleague in the field, a dance dramaturg called Dee Cools, called Performing Morning. That's what, uh, it's literally that. And it's full of examples of European artists, solo performers, mourning their own losses on stage in artistic performances, you know. And, you know, it's a huge documentation, and I suddenly thought to myself, you know, I, I see a lot of theatre and I write about theatre. I said I've never really encountered in the Indian theatre uh, any artist who's actually in an autobiographical mode mourning a very specific loss of a father or a mother. Mourning is certainly there; it's in it's a trope, so it will always be there, in, you know, in our in our narratives. I'm not trying to deny that, but in this autobiographical personal mode, to be honest with you. I would find it very hard to name any. So I was curious about that question. I said, why is that the case? You know, because our Indian artists are doing all kinds of things. So I got into conversation with D. Cools, and we both agreed uh, uh, in, in conversation that maybe... We have other things to fall back on, namely rituals and other kinds of ceremonies, the paraphernalia of death, as it were. You know that that is always there. You have no choice, actually, if you are for most people in India. Whereas for somebody in the West, they don't have that. It's it, it's a very very impersonal approach to death, you know. I lost a very, very close friend of mine. It's a personal sharing. Uh, she's an actor called Alapnanda and she died. And as always, there's a separation in time between the moment of death and the ceremony, which is not the case for us in India. The ceremony has to happen more or less at the time of death. You know, that's the connection but for all kinds of bureaucratic reasons, you may not get a, 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 a place in the, in the cemetery or whatever, you know, so you just, you take it for granted. Okay, I'll wait 10 days, I'll wait 11 days or whatever, and I'll then read. So my, I watched on video my, my friend's uh, death ceremony and was very British. It was beautifully choreographed. Everything was in place. There were speeches and lectures. And they were playing Edith Piaf, this great French uh, singer, her favorite uh, singer, that kind of thing. And at some point, I was not ready for this. The coffin, which was there in the middle of the room, Descended into the lower depths. I couldn't believe this, you know. I, I couldn't believe this kind of artifice could be uh, used, you know. Uh, whereas, you know, what our our ceremonies would be a lot more messy. There would be, you know, all kinds of <laughs> mess. Always comes to mind. It's like you know chaos, and you know, but still a lot of tenderness and a lot of people coming together, kind of thing. So anyway, that was the crux. I said, why don't we have uh, these so-called very autobiographically mediated things. And I fell back on the conclusions because we have, we have rituals to fall back on. And uh, so that's why I felt a need to include some very weird examples. Some of them might seem weird, like there's one guy, a Dutch performance artist, who's just crying in front of the camera, You know, and you would wonder why you're crying. You know, what's the what's the purpose? What's the object? So, uh, I this builds to a critique of what I would say is an appropriation of other people's grief, uh, which comes through in the spectacular installation by the American visual artist Terrence Simon. Called an occupation of loss, where she incorporates over 30 to 35 professional mourners into her installation. And for a 30-minute period, they all cry and lament. But they're not crying for anyone who's really dead, who's died. They're just there in a choreographed kind of spectacle, And this, for me, is the worst kind of consumerism. I I just can't take it. It's exotic. You're dealing with non-Western lamentation traditions. You're just getting them to cry and grieve or whatever. But there's no context, you know, for this, you know. You decontextualize it and you make an issue out of that. So that was how that argument worked, against which I juxtaposed, of course, the very strong example of Rudali by Mahashita Devi, which is also dealing with professional mourners, but who mourn not because for ritualistic reasons, they mourn to survive. It's a livelihood, you know? So that's how I try to build up the argument. um, So it's a different artistic mourning practice. It's very funny if you see a production of Rudali, it's ironic, it's jocular, you know, and uh, full of dark humor, you know? And none of, no false reverence, which is what you find in uh, in the Simon installation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just, I kind of like that the book's building up um, all this momentum and then ends with this really evocative discussion of breath and oxygen and something so ephemeral, but also something so so basic to life. Uh and also captures very well the cyclicity of the pandemic. Um and your own sort of and, and also your own structuring of the book, which is a constant back and forth and in and out. Um this is a great sort of you know point to you know for, for the book to not end but you know into an opening. It finishes into this opening. Um so if you could maybe speak a little bit more about. This is the vital force of breath that becomes threatened in the pandemic, um, both as a kind of creating, creative structuring form for the book, uh, but also how it helps how you know the, the pandemic and your own exploration in the book help us rethink breath um, and its and its force.
2: Thank you. Uh, see, breath cannot be separated from the body, so the body is very central. And it comes up at a certain point when I'm dealing with, uh, uh, I think it's Ashil Mibende's uh, very wise uh, kind of uh, suggestion. We need to find a new way of inhabiting the planet, you know. If we go on, you know, extracting resources, killing animals and, you know, and uh, emitting all these toxins in the air and, you know, greenhouse gases. We are going, it's just irreversibly uh, dire, okay? And I felt inhabiting the planet is too big a proposition for me in an essay to deal with. So I said, I'd like to find a way of entering that framework through the body, okay? So what is the role of the body in relation to the pandemic, how can the body, in a sense, become a resource of energy uh, to, in a sense, deal with the uh, onslaught of, 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 of the virus and so on and so forth? And this went through an interesting chain, which, if you don't mind, I'll just spell out the main points. So it was sparked by a wonderful uh, uh, formulation by uh, a dance choreographer called Andre Lepecki. And Andrei Lipecki was dealing with the body in the pandemic. And he was trying to say, on the one hand, the body has been confined to solitary confinement in house, some kind of house arrest, a voluntary house arrest. So uh, we've lost the capacity to move. You know, we've surrendered it. And uh, on the other hand, of course, in normal times, you have this... uh, speed-driven, neoliberal economy that is compelling us to move all the time. Of course, the irony is that you can be sitting put in your house in front of your camera, but you're going to be wired to all kinds of corporations and different kinds of economies. So he's trying to figure out a way, what do we do about this? And he arrives at an interesting uh, uh, formulation called movement in the pause. That's his formulation. And this movement in the pause, it's, uh, it's, it's beautifully uh, written. Uh, I'm just trying to get the exact uh, quotation that he has. There's um, it, Link? It's, he sees it embodying a stillness, which is simultaneously refusal, potentiality, and action. I found that very interesting. Refusal, Potentiality and action instillment. Now, the moment I read this, I immediately knew what I had to write about, and that was the dance work of this great choreographer, Chandralekha, on whom I have already written. Now, Chandralekha was a radical, you know, and uh, she strongly believed that the body is the center of the universe. And therefore, she had this, uh, uh, she worked with this construct called Sharira Mandala. So the body is the is a, is the mandala of the universe at all. And I had spent a lot of time with her on a production called Prana, which literally means breath. You know, that's what, so I saw that production unfold at very, very close quarters. And so I was able to make connections between what Andre Lipecki was saying, movement in the pause, and what she was doing in a very precise way through an exploration of yoga. But yoga in dance form. So, the yogic asanas were being stretched and in the stillness, there was movement. So, I was thinking on these lines and uh, I felt, you know, as always, there needs to be a reality check. So Chandralekar was not some new age, uh, you know, kind of mystic or something. She was a political woman, although her politics was not always understood by uh, activists or feminists because she spoke the language of the body. And the language of the body is not always accessible in words, you know. So this is one of the problems perhaps I've had with, Amitav Ghosh's work when he's trying to find a way of, as he's saying, listening to the non-human, you know. But how do you listen to the non-human? For him, the approach is almost entirely discursive in the language of theory and criticism as we understand it. But I would argue that perhaps a more pliant way of listening to the non-human is through music and sound and dance. You know, there are other ways of uh, reaching those energies, plant energies or cosmic energies or whatever. So anyway, um, this seems, I will have to say, somewhat idealistic. So I bring in a complication here that and true yoga, because yoga is also used by the military, you know, to develop training practices and the training to kill efficiently. So you don't have to be disturbed. So with every potentiality, there is also a darker side. So I tried to bring that into my argument. And this led me into into uh, spending some time on Fanon and what he calls combat breathing. You know, Now, combat breathing is what the colonized state imposes on us. We're all choking. We're all suffocating because of different forms of colonization. But that's one kind of combat breathing. It's also possible to say that activists uh, have their own ways of practicing combat breathing when they're dealing with terrible states. I mean, if I had to ask you, what would it be like to be in Ukraine at the moment living, let's say, in an underground train shelter, you know, what would that experience be? You would have to be controlling your breath. You would have to be finding ways of dealing with the bombs, the explosions, and all kinds of things. So combat breeding is also a way of resisting the violence. You know, that's another way. And, uh, of course, we know that some people have died in a state of combat breeding, like George Floyd, who died, you know, as we know, repeating the same, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, while trying to breathe. That was his combat breathing, which unfortunately didn't work because he was choked to death, you know. And on a more kind of, you might say, banal note, we practice combat breathing in our own ways in everyday life. When we're walking on a street and it's very hot and you've got your mask on, you say, and under your breath, you just say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You know, it's just an undertone. It's not, it's not, you're not thinking of George Floyd. You're not thinking of those horrors. It's just your own habitual condition, which you've accepted. So all of this, I felt was full of all kinds of uh, dynamics and contradictions. And I end the book on one image, which is that of the Shavasana, the Shava meaning corpse. And that's the most difficult of asanas to actually fulfill. And it's just uh, the stillness of a corpse. But the stillness of a corpse is never inert. It's never, you know, fixed. There's a movement in that stillness of the corpse. So I felt that was a very suggestive kind of image to end the book on.
1: It was. And it sort of like really answers the, the challenge that you set for yourself at the start. Like look, start from a moment of stillness, but look at all this kind of chaotic motion and chaotic sort of, you know, unbecomings around you in the pandemic. Um, so that was really great. And thanks very much for sharing that with us. Um, but before we let you go, I'd love to hear about what what you're doing next and what is the next sort of project uh, that you're, you know, weaving in your mind?
2: Oh, my God, there's no weaving. There's a, a very hard construction at work on a new book. Uh, I've been very um, sort of struck by the ongoing debates, which are very fierce, on decoloniality. So I've been reading quite a lot of stuff coming from Latin America where decoloniality has been formulated over the years. Uh linked to uh, indigenous social movements, you know, which I think we unfortunately tend to undermine or ignore or marginalize altogether, but not so in Latin America where indigenous voices have even affected uh, the writing of constitutions, you know, by inscribing uh, the figure of Pachamama or Earth Mother in the opening preambles of constitutions in Bolivia and Colombia and so on. So, but there's also a backlash against decoloniality that's coming from African writers. Uh, there's a huge book, as you might have read, Olufemi Taiwo's book against decolonization. And I'm trying to see how this all uh, impacts on us in India, you know, where we have a very different history. So, for example, in India, uh, we don't really engage with the discourse of race. You know, for us, it's the discourse of caste, you know, so these are what is the relationship between caste and race? This is one of the things I'm, I'm battling with. And uh, the whole indigenous question has been, to my mind, very greatly uh, marginalized. So I'm trying to bring together all some of my earlier publications and I'm trying to, if you will, uh, uh, find ways of incorporating them into a larger narrative dealing with the intercultural, the intracultural, the decolonial, and the subaltern. So that's what I'm working on. It's an academic book. (laughs) I'm back to that kind of writing. But I will always remember the second wave as a very important reminder of how different writing can be and how if you open yourself to a particular state of emergency, it can be very productive, though painful.
1: Wow, that's a really brilliant summary of what it is that the book achieves. Uh, You know, and there's this, as I said before, there is just this pouring forth. Um, of of emotions, but also it's contained. You know that emotions are contained within a you know larger critical apparatus of thought. So there thank is that you. very productive tension in the book, and you've captured it so brilliantly right now. Um, so thank you very much for writing this book and for taking our time to speak with us. Um, it was a real pleasure to be in conversation with a great you. Great
2: pleasure, Garima. As I said, you know. When I started writing this book, I didn't want to speak. But now that the book is written, I do want to speak. And it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you.